Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But it is coming, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but he is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Father, we thank you for your grace and your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have recorded for us your promises in the Old Testament, your promises fulfilled in the New Testament, your promises to come. I thank you, Lord, that we can depend upon you for all things. I thank you that you are a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and quick to love. Thank you, Father, that you have been clear with us as Christ was clear with the people, that the kingdom of God is at hand and we ought to live in repentance and faith and dependence upon your gospel. I pray you would give us grace this morning to hear your word clearly. I pray you would help me, Father, to speak your word clearly. Pray that by your spirit, you would do the work that you were faithful to do, that you would use your words as we revel and enjoy and marvel at them together to change our hearts, that we would be those who live for your will by the gospel of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning, as you look at the passage, it might be a passage you are very familiar with. Uh, maybe a passage that has plagued you. Many Christians are quite fearful, rightly so, over this passage. Uh, because the statement of this passage is that there is a sin you can commit. There is a sin that is eternal that will damn you forever. That there is a way in which you can live in sin that will be forever damned. And there is no salvation from it. That should strike fear in the hearts of all people. That message should make clear to all people that we must listen to what God has said. If it is that there is sin in such a way that condemns you to hell forever, we need to understand what that is. This morning, it is my goal to help us look clearly at this, to apply and to see what is going on here, what Jesus is saying to these scribes as they rebuke him, uh, he rebukes back. If we are to live in an understanding of the word, we want to take the full counsel of God. We want to rest in the counsel of God. Uh, we want not just the summary that Mark starts with, to repent and believe the gospel, 
because the kingdom of God is at hand, but we want to live for the kingdom of God. We want to hear not just the initial message of what must be, but we want to know then what does it mean to live in repentance and belief in the gospel. And Jesus clarifies for these scribes what will clearly mean for them that they are not living in the gospel. And so look with me first in our handout. Listen carefully to the fearful rebuke of Jesus. Listen carefully to the fearful rebuke of Jesus. In Mark 3, 22, the scribes come, and they, coming to him, as he, remember, is out proclaiming in the wilderness the gospel of Christ. He's going in and out of cities, proclaiming repentance and belief in the gospel, faith in Christ. And as he is casting out demons, as we looked at last week, as demons are coming and they know who he is, they're proclaiming he is the Son of God, and he is rebuking them, silencing them, is not interested in the praise of demons. The power of Jesus is made clear. Jesus does things that no one else around is doing. He always heals in such a way that there is complete healing. Remember the, withered, the, wither, the hand of the withered man who is fully restored. And we will read those who he brings back from the dead. Through He gives uh, sight to the blind. A man who was lame for 40 years from birth, up and walking around completely healed. A Messiah who has demons cry out and people have been tormented by them, by his word, they are gone. What happens for the scribes is they continue to observe what Jesus is doing. And as we know, the scribes in self-righteousness do not like what Christ is doing, but they cannot deny it. They cannot say it's simply a parlor trick. They cannot say Jesus has fake crowds around him. Notice throughout the Gospels, there is not suspicion that what Jesus is doing is merely a trick, merely a feat, merely a desire to steal money from people. There is no question in what Jesus is accomplishing. There is no question that the Messiah is among men. There is no question that what God has promised has come about. And the scribes, therefore, unable to deny the power of Christ, blaspheme his power. They cannot say Christ does not have the power. So what they say and said is that he has power and he has it from Satan, from demons, from the prince of demons. He casts them out. Unable to deny what Christ is doing, they deny the power by which he does it. They say he is empowered by Satan. The scribes accuse and Jesus refutes. Look with me at verse 23. He calls them to himself and Jesus proclaims they have a dumb conclusion. This is a dumb conclusion. The scribes who know the law, who have read the law, who see the law before them, those who are supposed to be the ones to Israel, they're the Bible answer man. They're supposed to be the men that say, look, here's what it says. But because of their own pride, they accuse Christ of doing this by the power of demons. And Christ says, how foolish can you be? He says their conclusion is dumb. Verse 23 calls them and it says in parables, 
He tells them, how can it be that Satan cast out Satan? And he, he gives a line that is Christ's, not Abraham Lincoln's, though you might attribute a house divided against itself cannot stand to Abraham Lincoln. It is Christ who says, he says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. And he is coming to an end. He says, first, it is ludicrous to assume that the power of Satan would reign on earth as though it could have this kind of ongoing power divided against itself. If Satan were to be the one casting out these demons, why would the demons listen to him in the first place? If they're completely divided against themselves, then the house is completely divided and it will fall. Christ points out the ludicrousy or the foolishness of what they're proclaiming. That he's doing this by the power of demons. He says that this house, his kingdom, is reigning over the kingdom of Satan. This is not a house divided within itself. This is the reign of Christ proclaiming. And that's what he goes on to say. He says in verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Christ is binding the strong man. Christ reigns over all things. He is sovereign. And so Christ is the one who enters into the strong man's house and plunders his goods. He binds them. Satan and demons are under his sovereign will. He has proclaimed already. He rebukes and removes and ends all demons. Christ proclaims first that their conclusion is dumb. And he doesn't say dumb, I do. So if that offends you, don't be offended by him. That's me. I just like it when things are DC, and now it's DC again. It's a pastor thing, I guess. Their conclusion is also dangerous. Not only is it dumb, but it is dangerous. Look with me at verse 28. He says, not only is it foolish for them to think that it is Christ by the power of Satan casting out demons when he is clearly the Messiah, when he is clearly fulfilling what the law has said, when he has clearly done what God has promised would come about thus far and will complete. But he says their conclusion is not only dumb, but it is dangerous. Verse 28. And truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. He warns them it is dangerous in what they're doing. And what they are doing is in danger of an eternal sin. It could be. That what they are doing is committing an eternal sin. It could also be that Christ is warning them uh, that they are approaching or they are working in such a way that will commit that eternal sin. And theologians are, are at times uh, divided here. Uh, well, are divided here, not at times. Just depends which two are in the room. Uh, but they are divided on is this talking about the direct action of what the scribes are doing now? Or is this a warning of Jesus 
of something else that could be done? Is he saying that the scribes have committed this act, that they have done the eternal sin? Or is he saying that they are moving or they are on the ground that could be? Many theologians will say, first, he's damning their statement as unforgettable. That Christ is stating that these men, because they have accused Christ, the Messiah, of casting out demons by Satan, they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit by whom he casts out demons. And so theologians would argue uh, that that is what Jesus is saying, that these men have committed an eternal sin because they are proclaiming that Jesus and the Spirit of God are under the power of demons. They're blaspheming the Spirit because it is by the Spirit which Jesus is working. And so, many would say, uh, this is a sin that you cannot commit. Because the Messiah present, doing the works of the Messiah, proclaiming what he has uh, said would come about, and the scribes who are to know this standing before him, no question of what is going on. They understand what is happening, and what are they choosing to do? They're choosing to blaspheme, to speak words of rebuke and destruction and slander to the Spirit of God that Jesus does this by Satan. And so many would say the unforgivable sin is a sin in which these men are doing because they are blaspheming the Spirit of God at work in Christ. No question that he is not the Messiah. They have no, no reason that they should not fully embrace the Messiah. But they are questioning within themselves their own righteousness, and they do not like what Christ is saying. So then they harden their hearts to the clear, undeniable truth that the Messiah has come, and they attribute it to Satan. Because if they say, by the works of God, he does it, then they are in the wrong. And so they, with, with zeal and anger and frustration, they accuse Jesus of working from Satan. Why? Because they want to discredit him. They want their righteousness to reign. They find a means by which saying, you should not follow this man. He's a worker of Satan. And it could very well be that that is the unforgivable sin. It could very well be that what Jesus is speaking to them is that they have done something and they have said something in which they have blasphemed the Spirit in such a way that there is no means of repentance. If they are doing such, there would be also no desire of repentance. So option number one is uh, that their statement is the damning and unforgivable sin. It could be also that his warning of their direction, uh, that they are moving toward an unforgivable sin, that they are hardening their hearts in such a way in the denial of who Christ is, that when the Spirit works, and He will, when the Spirit comes and acts, after Christ says, it is better that I go away, and the Spirit comes, and the Spirit transforms His church, and they continue to deny and to rebuke and to blaspheme the Spirit, that they will harden their hearts to such a place that there is no desire in them and there will be found no opportunity for repentance. For us, 
It's not merely theological to figure out what's going on here. It's not merely a theological debate, right? We want to understand what is it that damns man to hell for eternity? And how is it that man can live in the hope of Christ? That is essential for us. And many Christians live in fear and thinking that they have done one act at some point in their life that has damned them forever. The church has wrongly come to other conclusions of this and that this is adultery or this is suicide or this is other things which is nowhere near in the text. What's happening in this text is that those who have heard and those who know the truth, they have seen the truth happen, are denying the truth and attributing it not to the power of God in bringing righteousness to man, but to say it is powerless. It is of Satan. It's evil. It's wrong. For us to know, are we blaspheming the Spirit in such a way that we'd be damned forever? I think we need to consider a few things. Number one, it would be foolish for us to spend all of our time concerned about what is this action of damning for eternity to ignore that the Bible is not unclear. There is plenty that damns to eternity. It is not one action of your life. It is an ongoing, active rebellion of sin against God. This is not a fear that you might do one thing at one point that cannot be covered by the blood of Christ. Christ has made it clear there is nothing that Christ's blood cannot cover. There is no sin. There is no one who will repent and turn to him that will not be saved. He's made it very clear. Whatever this sin is, it is a sin that damns in a way that hardens a heart from repentance. Notice what you might not see in the text immediately that Christ says. He says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Whatever blasphemies they utter. What is the means of forgiveness? It is Christ. And what is the fruit of forgiveness? It is repentance and faith. And so I think it is very likely that what Christ is saying here is that these scribes are moving dangerously close to hardening their hearts in such a way against the Spirit of God that they will find no room for repentance. They will have no ability to repent. I think this partly because of Matthew chapter 12, 31 and 32. In Matthew 12, 31 and 32, he says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Notice he says, even a word, even a blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven. He says, even if they were to blaspheme who? The Son of Man? Christ. Even if they were to blaspheme Him, it will be forgiven. If they were to accredit the work of Christ to Satan, if they were to accredit Christ to something else, if they were to slander Christ, even that could be forgiven. If they were to defame the work of Christ, 
They could be forgiven. And in the end of Mark 3, 22, as we were looking in verse 30, he says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They're, they're saying that Christ is doing this. It's his power that he has an unclean spirit. That means by which doing it. So that would lead me to believe that Christ is warning them. He's telling them there's a way in which you will live if you deny the works of the spirit and you attribute them to Satan. If you deny this and you have heard this and you know the truth and you go on and you declare that it is not true, then you will find yourself damned without repentance. I think Christ is warning them. I think he is giving them a fearful rebuke. And I think it's recorded in Mark and in Matthew for our sake because that same rebuke is needed. What is it to blaspheme the Spirit? It could be just the words these men said. But we know clearly, if you deny the work of the Spirit, if you declare that the Spirit of God can't change you, if you live in a life that refuses to repent and refuses to put your faith in Christ, what are you doing? You are setting yourself against the Spirit of God. More than trying to figure out what is the one thing you could do that would damn you forever, what you need to seek to figure out is what has Christ done that you could never be damned? That you could rest in Him. Because you could spend your whole life in fear that you did one action and justify all kinds of actions that are damning you to hell. Because you refuse to listen to Christ. You refuse to hear Him. In order to really wrestle through this, I think we need to understand what is the work of the Spirit. Uh, that would require many hours. So brace yourself. Just kidding. So we're going to do that through three passages this morning. Uh, I want to point you first to a passage that you're familiar with because we're working through it in community groups right now. So many of you, you've already looked at this passage this week. You're continuing to study this passage this uh, coming week for community groups. And as Paul is writing to the Corinthians about their division, he reminds them how they are united. He compels them that they have received wisdom. They don't live by the wisdom of the world, but they have received wisdom. In 1 Corinthians 2, 6, it says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although not a wisdom from this age, of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret, hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the Son of Man imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit of God searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God and impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, 
interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. For the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. He says earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, he says, And because of him you are in Christ. Because of the Spirit, because of God, you are in Christ, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. What is this wisdom, this mystery? It says that we impart to the mature wisdom, secret knowledge. This is not a hidden secret knowledge that you cannot know. This is a secret knowledge that once was not known and now is. When the Bible speaks of a mystery, it's not talking about mysterious things you don't know. Here particularly, you can see it is declaring the mystery revealed, that God declared from the ages that Christ would come and that we have a wisdom from Christ, a wisdom that does what? A wisdom of righteousness and sanctification and redemption. A wisdom that makes you completely and fully holy before God because you have the righteousness of Christ. A wisdom that sanctifies you because you know though you are fully holy before God in all righteousness, you are in great need of that holiness to be manifest in your life. You know that you do not live as holy. It's why you fear things like, what is it I could do to never be saved? Because you know sin continues in your life. That's why you wrestle through those things. But the wisdom of God has been given that you would know that you are righteous and you would know that he sanctifies. And lastly, because you are redeemed. What is it to be redeemed? It is to be something that had no value brought back into value. We think of this as CRV, California Redemptive Value, right? It's not the same because you pay for that value. They're tricking you. But you could take it back and get your money until China says they don't want our recyclables anymore. Why? Because it's backed by a false system. It's just something we decided we were going to do. We were going to say this trash now has value. And we're going to give it value. See, redemption in Christ is not like that. Redemption in Christ is that you have been completely purchased by Christ, and it's by his blood that you have been redeemed. It is not something that loses its value. It's not something that has a temporal fiat understanding by man. It is the work of God, the glory of God, which was revealed before time, which was declared through the Old Testament, which the scribes should have seen and heard and know, and which Jesus warned them, you better listen carefully. Because by Christ, righteousness is imparted, never to be removed. By Christ, his people are sanctified to look more and more like him, not less. Because in Christ, they are redeemed. This is the mystery hidden for ages, but revealed. And how is it revealed? By the Spirit of God. The words do not reveal it alone. It says, we impart with words spiritual truths that can only be spiritually discerned. So you could sit here this morning and you could hear me say these things and you could intellectually say, I understand what you mean. And I refuse to accept it. 
How am I righteous through him? How can I trust that he would actually sanctify me? What makes me redeemed? You could say, I don't think I'm that bad anyway. I don't need it. The spiritual understanding of this is not that we Christians hear some different words than unbelievers say. It's not that this book is so impossible to comprehend. They just can't get it. And somehow we're smart enough. No. It's that the truths which are declared here, the mystery revealed in Christ, will not be accepted by man without the powerful work of the Holy Spirit to transform a heart that hears there is righteousness available in Christ, a heart that fears their eternal state before God and longs to repent, a heart that is redeemed in Christ and a life that is sanctified because of his work. This is the work of the Holy Spirit done by God. It's what Corinthians proclaimed to us this week, that there is a unity among us because the Spirit of God has been put in our hearts in such a way that we long to know and to obey Him. We long to love and to serve Him. We have been given a wisdom of righteousness in pursuit of sanctification by His power because we know He has been, we have been redeemed in Him. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what he does. Corinthians will go on to teach us. It is not that we should fear that we could live however we want and Jesus will save us. But there's just one thing we must not do. It's not one thing that damns you to hell. What is one thing? And that one thing is manifest in all kinds of things in your life. Sin is what damns to hell. It is not one single action of your life that therefore damned you forever. It is that sin reigns in you if you are not Christ's. It's that your heart hears the truth of the gospel and says, I don't care. I don't, I don't want to be righteous. I feel like God's just trying to keep fun things from me. I don't want to be sanctified. I don't need to be redeemed. See, it is not that you might say a few words at one point in your life and then you can never be saved. The truth is, until your hope is in Christ, everything in your life damns you to hell. Everything. Because you live in unrighteousness. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 says, For do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now you might approach this like the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and asks, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus gives him the commandments and he says, I've kept them from my youth, right? Jesus says, this is what condemns a man. And he says, oh, then I'm good. I'm fine. And Jesus tells him, then sell everything you can and follow me. If you're holy and righteous, you have no sin in you, sell it all and follow the Messiah. And what does he say? I can't do that. I can't give up what I have to live for Christ. He refuses. And you might see this list in the same way. You think, well, I haven't been sexually immoral. Jesus would say, you're a liar. You say, I'm not an idolater. I don't worship little statues. But you worship all kinds of things. 
You worship all kinds of things that you put in the rightful place of God. I'm not an adulterer. I've never committed adultery. I'm not a homosexual. I'm not a thief. I don't steal. I'm not greedy. I'm not, I don't get drunk. I don't revile. I don't rebuke people. I don't swindle people and take what's theirs. So therefore, I will inherit the kingdom of God. If you hear that list and you say, none of that belongs to me, you're self-deceiving. Because you know you have lusted after people and things in such a way that you have acted out in anger and frustration and violence. You've swindled people and been greedy and faithless toward them. You know that you have functioned in a way that condemns you. You know that you have lived your life in such a way that he says, do not be deceived. Do you not know unrighteousness, which you know has been manifest in you, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Your greatest danger is not that you at one point in your life do one act that condemns you from Christ forever. Your greatest danger is that you justify every single act of your life, refusing to see that you live on unrighteousness, and the only grace that you could depend on is the wisdom from Christ, that he has made you righteous. And you might think, I'm so glad I came to church this morning to be damned to hell. <laughs> Christian, here clearly, that is not where this verse ends. See, Jesus' rebuke to them is real. Jesus' rebuke to them matters. The fear in which Jesus longs to strike in their heart is intentional. Because you ought to live in fear of God. Because you know he is righteous, and you know you are not. But do not discredit the grace and mercy of God. See, he powerfully works in people to transform them. Jesus declares to them, you could blaspheme all kinds of things, but if you refuse the work of the Holy Spirit, if you blaspheme the Spirit's work, what are you doing? You are refusing, rejecting, and blaspheming the very work that will transform your heart. If those scribes committed one sin at one point that you can't commit because the Messiah is not before you, then let that go. But do not live your life thinking, I'm safe because I can't do that. Live your life running to the arms of Christ where only safety is found. Because 1 Corinthians 6 continues... It says that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But in 1 Corinthians 6.11, it says, And such were some of you. And such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What happens to you, Christian? What was it that went on in your life? You were justified by the name of Christ and through the Spirit of our God. The work of the Holy Spirit is to transform the heart of man to love the glory of Christ. It is transform the heart of man to completely depend upon the work of Christ. It is the work of the Spirit to make the work of Christ real in your heart. Embrace that. Don't live your life thinking, I want to just make sure there's not a couple things I can't do and then Jesus will accept me. Don't live like the world that says, I'm a good guy. I've never gone to jail. 
That's not the standard of righteousness. Don't live looking around at others and saying, I'm okay because I'm not as bad as them. Because that is the heart of the scribes. That is the heart of the Pharisees. That is the heart that says, I don't need the Spirit of God because I'm better than my neighbor. In the book of Titus, we're reminded of the same work. Titus 3, 1 through 11. As Paul is writing to Titus, he's encouraging him to remind the church in Ephesus of this truth, of what the Spirit of God has done in them, and that it ought to manifest in them something remarkable. Look at verse 1 of Titus 3. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He says, remind them that this is the way they ought to live, striving for good works, to speak kindly to people, to be benevolent, to not be those looking for fights, but to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people, because you yourself know that you were once foolish like them. You were once disobedient like them. You were once led astray like them. You were once slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing your day in malice and deceit. But notice it says you were once, not you are. You are not anymore. Look at verse four. But a word of contrast, though this was once true, but now something different. Though you were once like them, you can love them. Why? Because you got yourself to church and you straightened things out, right? Because you're mature. Because you matured and you figured it out. Because your parents raised you right. And the proverb said you'll return to that in your old age. And now you're a light to the blind. You make it known. That's not what he says. It's not the but. The but is not that you are different now because of your work. Because of what you've done. Because of your righteousness. Because of your intellectualism. Because you figured it out. Because you searched the scriptures. Because you are now the light to men. What changed you? Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
As for a person who stirs up division after one warning, after warning him once, sorry, and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. It's interesting that the warning goes on. Because Christ has done this work, what, we, what ought we to do? Because he has made us righteous, what should our lives look like? A pursuit of sanctification. Because he has redeemed us. Right? It's exactly what 1 Corinthians said. You have his righteousness. The Spirit of God sanctifies you because you are redeemed. And you pursue it. And you live in it. And he warns that, they, that we must live for this. Why? Because knowing that such a person who lives in division, who lives to remove themselves, who lives for sin, who spends their whole life on some pendulum, not leaning into Christ, but looking back and going, ah, is he condemning me yet? No, okay, I'm okay to do this thing. It says they are warped and self-condemned. They're embracing sin in such a way that denies the work of the Spirit. Christian, the glory of God is that you are not fixed. You are not made righteous because what you have done or not done. You are not holy and faithful because what you have done or not done. It is not your work that has redeemed you. It is the Spirit's work. Do not deny the work of the Spirit. Don't live as though you are one enslaved to sin. Don't live your life trying to figure out what are the couple things I need to stay away from so that he doesn't condemn me. Spend your life running to be sanctified in him. Spend your life living for him. And maybe you live in such a way that says, I can't do that like you people. I know you people. I know you faith Bible people. You are the scribes. So holy. All about the word of God. Always pursuing it. Always want to know the truth. I can't live like you. I can't be part of that family. And here's the grace of God. His family is not defined by what you think. It's defined by those who the Spirit has worked in and run to do His will, to live for Him. You don't look around this room and go, could I be part of this family because these people don't look like me? How could I be part of this family? How could I be part of this family? I come from such a different background, such a different life. They don't even understand me. They don't know who I am. Maybe you believe that there is some sin in you that's not common to all. Something you've done and you think, I can't get that close. I could have Jesus from afar, but I could never have Jesus from my all. I just want to briefly point you to the end of this passage. Look with me at Mark 3, 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, standing outside. They sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about to those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God 
He is my brother and my sister and my mother. There's some amazing things going on here. Why do they cry out to Jesus? Your mother and your brothers are outside. Because family matters. Family matters immensely. There is no one closer in your life than family. Family is the means by which God continues life on earth. No matter what our society wants to argue about birthing people, there are only birthing mothers. And birthing mothers only happen when there are fathers. And mothers and fathers are intended to be the family unit that gives comfort and security and protection to children who grow up and know they belong to that family. But sin destroys everything in our society. Sin destroys everything in our society and it exalts everyone. It puts everyone in pride to say, I'm the standard of righteousness, I'm the standard of holiness. So we lived in a weird place. We live in a weird place. A place where it's shameful to say that family should be the tightest unit. Why? Because sin has broken into families in such a way that it tears them to shreds. Because many of you know and understand the sin and the shame and the pain that comes about from adultery and fornication and not marriage and the bearing of children, from divorce and adultery, from the destruction of families, from a society that's completely removed from the family. So you hate the idea of family, maybe even. You hate it when someone talks about Mother's Day or Father's Day because your mother was nothing but a picture of sin to you and your father did nothing but abandon you. But that doesn't change God's design. Family is intended to be a place of closeness and security and intimacy and blood-bought relation. But sin destroys that. And so they look and they see, here's Jesus' blood-bought relation. Here's his mother. Here's his brothers. Of course, he must be with them. But if you look just a few verses back, it appears, and as becomes true, that many of his brothers, as we'll see in the Gospels, were denying him. And Jesus makes a statement. He says, what you think of the closest of unity, what you believe to be the closest of unity, is family. But what Christ says is, those who live for him, those who do the will of God, those who have been transformed by the Spirit of God, that's his mother. That's his brothers. That's his sisters. That is the intimate safety of God's people. The familial relationship that Christ calls you into is not, you're okay, go live out there on your own and try to make yourself righteous now. It's that you are completely embraced. You are fully his. He, in such a way that he's given you your spirit, his spirit that you could be transformed. And he's given the church on earth that we together would be the family of God living for his glory and his grace. Christ's love for you is not a distant philosophical love that says, I'll make you right, but don't get close to me. It is a familial love. It says you see the picture of God's creation, the design, that family is close and tight. And you are frustrated by the sin of earth. But re be redeemed in Christ. 
If the picture has been destroyed, remember it is only a picture. It is Christ that bonds people, that buys people, that purchases people, that makes those who have no family, as Jesus says, they will have mother and brother and sister. Those who have no dwelling on earth will have dwelling. And I know for some of us, family has been an intimate picture of the love of God, but for all of us, it has been insufficient. It will never be clear enough. It can never communicate to you the love in which Christ loves you, because he has died. It is not the blood of which you were born, but the blood in which you have been bought that unites you in Christ. And it is the work of the Spirit that transforms you to be righteous, to live in sanctification, because you are redeemed. Not just trash made a treasure, but people made his family. Christian, don't live in fear if there is one thing you might do that would condemn you. Live in the love and hope of Christ by repentance and faith that there is a Savior who has done all that must be done and run to him. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. We thank you, Lord, that we can depend upon you for all things. We pray, Lord, that you would give us grace, that you would help us to be obedient. I pray, Father, that we would not be those who live in fear, but in love and hope and faithfulness. Father, I pray that we would not occupy our thoughts with condemnation. I pray we would not live in the fear of death. And I pray, Lord, that would not be because we've convinced ourselves of something by positive words or self-reflection, but because we've been bought with your blood. I pray you would help us to hear your words, that we would repent and believe in the gospel because your kingdom is at hand. I thank you for making us part of your kingdom, for calling us your brothers and your sisters. I pray you would help us to reflect that on earth, that you would be glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.